Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And let's read God's word. This is Nehemiah speaking, and he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with your word, with your promises. And Lord, I... I come to you confident on your word and on your spirit, Lord. Because you are a great God. You are the awesome God. But Father, I am a sinner and I am weak. And so Lord, I pray that you would help me preach your word this morning. And I pray that you would help my brothers and my sisters understand your word this morning. I pray that their hearts may be opened to what you have for us. And I pray, Father, that you would be glorified as we delight in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think most of us can agree, especially the older that we get, that there is one thing that we are all assured of in this world. We are all assured that at some point in our lives, we will experience crises. 
In fact, our Lord tells us in John 16.33, in the world you will have tribulation. And this is a reality whether you believe the words of Jesus or whether you don't. In fact, we see TV shows like Dr. Phil where people suffering through major crises are looking for a way to deal with their suffering. And so we find articles like the one that I found this week in the Reader's Digest that is entitled Seven Rules for Crises Management. And these are the seven rules. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Look first and then act. When you do act, act aggressively. Seek help. Don't get locked on a detail. No matter how bad things get, be truthful. Look for the silver lining. See, reality is that the world around us wants to figure out what to do when crisis hits. And I believe that this morning God wants to present to us his alternative to crisis management. He is going to present to us a man who has just received very disturbing news. The kind of news that drives him to mourning and weeping. Have you ever had crisis knock on your door? Maybe this is where you find yourself this morning. You sit here this morning. Weeping over the sickness of a family member. Weeping over the ruins of your marriage. Weeping over the broken walls of your finances. Perhaps you find yourself mourning the loss of a relative. Mourning the loss of a job. Mourning the burned gates of communication between you and your son or your daughter. Maybe you sit here in defeat, contemplating your captivity to sin. Anger, lust, greed, they have all broken your defenses and have cut short your progress. But this morning, God presents to us a name, a man named Nehemiah. And we met him last week. And Nehemiah himself is a faithful Jew. One of the exiles who are ecstatic over the coming of the kingdom of God. And he's biding his time in, 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 the, in the kingdom of Persia as the cupbearer of the king. But as we saw last week, he is very interested in the remnant of Jews who have returned home to rebuild. And he understands that the rebuilding of the city meant the restoration of God's promise to his people. And so we get this picture of Nehemiah faithfully working in the Persian palace, but in his heart, he is humming the lyrics to the song, This World is Not My Home. And he is dreaming of the day where he will come home and be in the new Jerusalem. But we learned in chapter 3 that he gets the news that something has gone terribly wrong. He learns that Things are not going well with the people. He learns that the people are in great trouble and disgrace. And the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates are burned. And so Nehemiah finds himself in a very distraught situation. 
what he had perceived as the promised restoration of God's kingdom arriving had been cut short. And Nehemiah was distraught. He wept for days. He couldn't eat. He mourned. My friends, there are crises that render us helpless and bewildered. That challenge not only our sanity and desire to live, but our very faith in God. This falling world assures us of that. But the question that this text will answer for us today is, what will we do when crisis comes? What will we do when all our hopes come crashing down? What will we do when our dreams are burnt to the ground? How will we respond? And Nehemiah's response answers that question for us. You see, in the midst of crises, Nehemiah prayed. But he didn't just pray any prayer. He prayed God's perspective. He came to God on God's terms, not his own. And I believe that this is what this text calls us to do. And if I could summarize the claim on this text for us in our lives, it would be this, and it's in your notes. Pray God's perspective. You see, my brothers and sisters, in the midst of our crisis, our first response is to turn to God and pray. Not our earthly perspective, but his heavenly perspective. So, that brings us a question. What does praying God's perspective look like? And there are many things in this prayer, many things that could be pointed out, but I want to highlight three things that derive straight out of the text that show us what praying God's perspective looks like. Three things. Praying God's perspective looks like prayer that knows God. Praying God's perspective looks like prayer that knows God's people. And praying God's perspective looks like prayer that knows God's promises. And so let's start with point one on our notes, prayer that knows God. What was Nehemiah's reaction to the news? Well, let us read verse four. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And now, as we saw earlier in the chapter, Nehemiah is living in the king's palace, okay? He has this great job. And now the problem in Jerusalem is approximately 800 miles away. He and his family were all born in Babylon under captivity. He never visited Jerusalem. But when he hears about the plight of God's people, he is overwhelmed with grief. You see, the burden of, this suf- of his suffering people was so great that he sat down and he began to weep profusely. He wept to the point of losing his appetite and driven to his knees for days. Now, why did Nehemiah weep? Why did he mourn? Why did he fast? Why did he pray for some days? And what we see here is that this is a man of compassion who deeply loved and cared for his people. Now, we may once in a while hear politicians say, I feel your pain, right? Especially during uh, election years. But Nehemiah is not running for office. 
And the bad news, and although he's miles away from the people and could easily just ignore the bad news, he truly felt his people's pain. He deeply felt their inner despair, sorrow, and loneliness. And this news stirs something deep within him that had never been stirred before. You see, as we keep learning about Nehemiah, when we keep going in, in, into the book, we are going to learn that Nehemiah is not uh, emotionally unstable. You see, he's not a weak man. No, no, no. He's, he's not a crier. Nehemiah had just received some news, and these feelings immediately created within him what was a burden, a desire to right a wrong. A passion to lift not only a city, but a people from their ruins. He was like our Lord Jesus Christ, who wept for those who were overcome by the power of death. John 11.35 is the smallest verse in the Bible, and it tells us two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept for all mankind who was oppressed by the power of sin and death. What we see here, guys... What we see here when we look at Nehemiah, what we see here is a man who knows God's burden for his people. He is a man who is in tune with the heart of God. My friends, there is something that I really want us to understand. Whenever we see a prayer recorded in Scripture, we need to remember that this is not just a prayer. This is the very Word of God. What we are reading here in these verses is not just Nehemiah's prayer, but the very heart of God for his people. The reason why Nehemiah is weeping is because he understands that the people of God are broken. Their walls are torn down and their gates are burned. They stand defenseless and weak before the enemies. And, and I believe that God wants you to know that this is God's heart for his people. People, You see, God may seem distant and unaware of your ruins, but he's not. God weeps for his people. He loves them, and he desires to restore them. Does this inform your prayers? Do you pray knowing that your father cares for you? When you are hurting, there is nothing more precious than knowing that God cares for you. And as we learn from the text that Nehemiah spends what so humbly he calls uh, a days weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying. But what was actually more like four months. From the month of Chislan, which we saw in chapter 1 when Al preached last week, December, to, as we will see next week, the month of Nisan, which is April. So Nehemiah prayed for four months at least. And so let's take a look at what Nehemiah prayed. Okay? He said, chapter, uh, verse 5, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, what is the first thing Nehemiah mentions in his prayer? God of heaven, the great and awesome God. 
Nehemiah is mentioned in God's character. He is the awesome God. You see, Nehemiah didn't rush into the presence of God asking for his crisis to be fixed. No, that's not what he did. He started with God's character, great and awesome. The word awesome in your Bibles is translated terrible in the Hebrew. It literally means one who incites terror. It's not about, this is not about his characteristics. This is about his position over us. In fact, it comes from the same root word where we get our word reverend. And so if you were to call Al, Reverend Al, you would be actually saying terrible Al. You see, we live in a culture today where we only want to hear about the love of God, the mercy and the grace of God, and the goodness of God. And these are all very real, and I'm thankful for those attributes. But if we reject the above, we are rejecting the fact that the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, many churches today are saying to the world, since you aren't willing to go to the one who said, come unto me, we will bring a more tolerable version of him down to you where you like to live. But guys, God is not the man upstairs. His name is not JC. See, when you have real crises and impossible situations, You don't need a God you can walk up to and high five. You need a God that is so great, so mighty, and so powerful that coming into his presence causes you to kneel in humble contrition. Our God is not safe. He is terrifying. But Nehemiah also knows that our God is good. Our God is good, and he's willing to listen to us. And I know this is not a new idea for you, but just stop and think about it for a minute. The terrifying, all-powerful God is good, and he wants to listen to you. And so Nehemiah also understands this. He understands that God is good and faithful. Look with me at verse 5 again. He says, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. You see, steadfast love is the quality that honors a covenant through thick and thin. But these first two sub-points together and know how they complement each other. What he's saying is God is both scary and dependable. He is frightening and faithful. He is holy and merciful. See, Nehemiah's prayer is grounded in the character of God. He feels God's burden and he has deep respect for God. He doesn't blame God for the misfortune of his people. He proclaims our God is to be great and awesome God. My friends, only God can be all powerful and all good. Just a quote from Martin Luther, he said once, If I had power like God, I would destroy ten times a day. But however, my friends, our God is different. You see, even though He is the Almighty God, He is also the God of love. 
He keeps his covenant of love even when we are unfaithful and willfully sin against him. And so Nehemiah pleads for his people on the basis of God's covenant of love. And it's this very covenant of love that makes God approachable. And so look with me again to verse 6. He says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants. Nehemiah knows that he is an approachable God. He can be spoken to. This prayer presents to us a God who is approachable. Yes, he is the great and awesome God. Yes, he is frightening. But prayer is not just a simple exercise in piety. We don't come to God with a scattered gun approaching that betrays a lack of any expectation. We don't come to God with the impression that God is not very interested in us and he doesn't want to care or listen to us. And I'm reminded of a story of a fisherman who grew up in church but who was out of fellowship with the Lord. And this man was at sea with his unbelieving friends and all of a sudden a storm comes and threatens to sink their ship and his friends, knowing that he grew up in church, start begging him to pray. But he renounces to. And he says, I haven't done that or even entered a church in so many years. And at their desperate insistence, he finally cries out. And he says, Lord, I haven't asked anything of you in 15 years. And if you help us now and bring us safely home, I promise I won't bother you again for another 15 You see, this is the reflection of the heart behind our prayers many times when we are in crisis. But note where Nehemiah finds comfort. He finds comfort in the midst of his crisis. My friend, if you are in crisis, you can find comfort in the character of God. The character of God is the necessary basis for prayer. We must base our prayers on the great and awesome God who is faithful to his covenant people and who is approachable. So whenever someone tells you, whenever someone tells you, you don't need theology in order to be devoted to prayer, this person is lying to you. You see, without a proper theology of who God is, we have no proper foundation for prayer. And we have no hope of comfort. Praying God's perspective is what we need. And so praying God's perspective looks like prayer that knows God. But praying God's perspective also looks like prayer that knows God's people. So let's read again verse 6. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants. Stop right there. You see, we have seen Nehemiah addressing of God, and now he continues by addressing himself as the servant of God. You see, in order for us to pray God's perspective, we must also know who we are before God. See, we are servants. Nehemiah doesn't view himself as the king's kid who deserves all the benefits of the king. 
He's not going around naming and claiming as if God is to serve us. Now please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We are the children of God. But our purpose and joy is to serve our Father and His purposes, not the other way around. You see, God is not Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy ready to take our selfish requests at our perceived convenience. He is our Lord and our Father, whom we serve with joy. Nehemiah not only understands this, but he also understands his condition and that of the peoples before God. And now, <clears throat> we read verse 6, and at the end of verse 6, he said that he was praying day and night, right? But then he continues on verse 6, and look at what he's praying. He's saying, we're praying day and night, and this is why he's praying. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have kept the commandments the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. You see, Nehemiah understands his lack of righteousness before God. He knows that he's part of the problem. You see, Israel deserved what they got. His own ancestors were part of the problem. And Nehemiah doesn't view himself as being different than that. He can look in his own heart and realize he shares the same problem. You see, there are no games in this prayer. There are no excuses here. He can be honest with God about who he really is because he believes God has revealed himself to be. You see, I think we can all agree that the best prayers are the ones that God hears. And he has promised that he doesn't hear the prayer of those who willfully aren't right with him. And Psalm 66, 18 tells us, If I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, Nehemiah knew it was his sin that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and her walls. And it would not be good to weep over the ruins if he was not willing to repent of the sin which led to those ruins. You see, if your life is lying in ruins... If sin is to blame, don't just cry over your plight. We need to confess to God. You see, Nehemiah understands this. He didn't only weep over the consequences, but primarily he wept over the sin which led them there. See, praying God's perspective is being able to take full responsibility of who you are as a sinner before God. It is taking responsibility for the direct sins that are breaking down your walls in your marriage. That are breaking down your walls in your relationships with your children. That are taking you captive into crisis like addictions and poverty and health issues. And it is also taking responsibility for the indirect sins. And what I mean by this is this. You see, maybe you are the one that is being sinned against. Perhaps the crisis you find yourself in this morning has nothing to do with your sin. But Nehemiah could have easily turned to God and said, Lord, the people have sinned, not I, Lord, but them. 
This is not fair because of their sin. Now I'll have to be in exile the rest of my life. But that's not God's perspective. You see, Nehemiah knows that we are all sinners before a holy God. And from Nehemiah, I learned that I must be fully responsible no matter what. Each of us is fully responsible. We are all sinners and we have come to God acknowledging our condition. Understanding that our crisis is as big as it may be. It is always much less than we deserve. And so to pray God's perspective is to pray knowing who God is. And to pray knowing who we are before him. But if this is all we knew in our prayers, our prayers would still be lacking. And this brings us to point three in our notes. Prayer that knows God's promises. See, one of the things that probably annoys parents the most is when their children say, but daddy, you promise. I mean, it happens to me all the time. I mean, maybe we're, we're like in a family day or something like that, and we go out, and I tell my kids, when we get home, we will play Animals That Obey. That's a game that we have. It's a training game. But maybe we went to the Machin home, and we started talking, and, you know, time passed, and, and, and it's past their bedtime, and so we get home, and we're putting them in bed, and all of a sudden, my daughter tells me, Daddy, you promised to play the Animals That Obey. That happens all the time. And we may get annoyed by that, but our Father in heaven delights in that. And Nehemiah reminds God of his promises of mercy. So let's read verses 8 through 10. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the outermost of parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You see, what is important to see here is that genuine prayer is based on God's promises. Prayer takes hold of God's promises and turns them into petitions and sends them back to God. God has promised to be merciful to his people, and Nehemiah has every reason to expect God's favorable reply. You see, he hasn't made up some kind of idea about who God is. Well, I think God ought to be this way, so that's why I feel confident. No, 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 no. He sought the scriptures to say, how has God revealed himself? What has God said is on his heart? How does God say he relates to us? And out of that revelation, he gets confidence. You see, he quotes Deuteronomy repeatedly in his prayer. And we can tell that Nehemiah is steeped into the early books of the Old Testament. And so he's saying back to God, God, this is who you've revealed yourself to be. And I'm relying on that. You are God who has made a covenant of love with your people. And so in verses 8 and 9, something really special happens, something important. You see, in verse 8, he reminds himself, and this is paraphrasing here. He says, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, 
If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Saying, God, you said that if we were evil, you would bring judgment. And guess what? You did. But then in verse 9, you know, he tells God, God, in the same book of Deuteronomy, in the same pages, you also said that if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So God, this is what you said. Guess what? Here we are. We're in exile at the farthest horizon. And God, I am seeking you. And I am serious about this. And I am seeking you. And so Nehemiah is holding on to God's own promise, saying, God, this is what you promised. These are your conditions. Here I am. Answer your servant. And so after acknowledging God, God's people and God's promises, and stating the thoughts and the motivations behind his one petition, Nehemiah makes his request made known to God in verse 11. So let's, let's read it. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And here we see a man of action that was not willing to act without prayer, but he is also a man of prayer who is not willing to pray without acting. You see, Nehemiah's pray prays with a heart ready to do something. Not only is this the prayer of a man who knows God's mercy, but also the prayer of a man that knows God's work. You see, he says, grant him, speaking of himself, mercy in the sight of man. You see, Nehemiah is concluding by asking God to bless him when he would soon speak to the king of Persia about the matter. And Nehemiah was going to do something about the broken state of the, of the Jerusalem walls and the people. And he knows that without God's work, he can do nothing. And then he says, let your servant prosper this day. This is a prayer of a man of action, not a sideline critic. You see, Nehemiah does not pray, God, make it all better. Or God, get someone else moving on this problem. Or God, send someone, please. Instead, his prayer is, God, use me to make it better. This is a man who is willing to work. This man, he has seen the crisis, and in the crisis has driven him to his knees to weep and to mourn. But it is... This very crisis that reminded him of God's burden for his people. It is this very crisis that reminded him of God's character. It is this very crisis that had driven him to take responsibility. It was this very crisis that reminded him of the mercy of God. And it's this very crisis that allowed him to see the work of God. And at the end of verse 11, Nehemiah makes a last remark. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And when Nehemiah makes this cupbearer remark, he is recognizing that Yahweh, God, the great and awesome God, his providence has been at work long before this moment. You see, he was high up in the civil service with access to the king and therefore was in favorable position to seek good for the people of Judah. And we can easily make this prayer about the faithfulness of Nehemiah. 
and overlook how God is at work behind the scenes. You see, before Nehemiah has even begun to pray, God has begun to work. Like Esther, a generation before, or Joseph, or Daniel, or David, or Moses, God has placed Nehemiah in a specific place at a specific time for a specific task. It's been nearly a hundred years since the Jewish people left Persia and returned home. And guess what? It just so happens that Nehemiah's family doesn't return. And guess what? It just so happens that Nehemiah doesn't return. And it just so happens that Nehemiah becomes an official in the king's palace. And it just so happens that Nehemiah becomes one of the most trusted advisors in the empire. And it just so happens that Nehemiah was right where he needed to be when he needed to be there. And it so often happens in these events that just so happens means God was behind it. See, my friends, in Genesis 12, God gave a man named Abraham a promise. God told him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God was at work in Nehemiah's heart because he is the covenant-keeping God. He is the faithful God who is at work redeeming his people. And in verse 10, Nehemiah understands this. And he tells God, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. My friends, God is a redeeming God. By his providence, he was at work raising up a man that he would send to restore the broken walls and the burned gates of his city and of his people. And the same providential redeeming God is our God. And 445 years after he raised up Nehemiah, he raised up an even greater man. He raised up the God-man, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem His people by His strong hand and once and for all. There are broken walls and burned gates all around us. All around us. But there is good news. Christ was broken for us in order that we could be redeemed. You see, Nehemiah prayed for mercy in the sight of the king of Persia. In Christ, we have received mercy in the sight of the king of kings. It is in Christ that we see God's ultimate burden and care. It is in Christ where we see the fullness of God's character. It is in Christ where we become children of God. It is in Christ where our sins are forgiven. It is in Christ where we receive mercy. It is in Christ where we can approach God with all confidence. And it is in Christ where God is at work building up the broken walls of our lives. You might find yourself in crisis this morning. But there is no greater crisis than if you find yourself outside, exiled from Christ. Please run to him, I urge you. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we are just overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness. Oh God, I understand why Nehemiah could fall down to his knees and weep. Because to be able to feel your burden, Father, for your people, to be able to understand your character, your faithfulness, your covenants, to be able to understand your promises to us, to be able to understand, Father, that you are providentially redeeming your people in all generations. And Father, we can weep even more because we have seen the promise. We have seen Christ nailed to a wooden cross for our sins. Nehemiah only hoped of of that. But we have seen it. And so Father, we raise our souls, our hearts unto you, Lord, and we pray. Help us, Lord. Give us that burden, Lord. Help us know you. Help us know your people and help us know your promises, Lord. And help us, Lord, uh, want to act, want to pray. Change our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, Let's stand up and let's sing to our wonderful Savior.